1: More people are now recognizing the spiritual in ways that polite society had avoided for over a century. At the Guggenheim today, you can see the canvases of Hilma af Klint and discover that her paintings came from channeling angels. The dirty secret that art gives voice to source is no longer so secret. But the energies that come through are not all light and forgiveness. Are we ready to accept the spiritual nature of our shadow as well? The opportunities are huge. The challenges are real. You're just in time for the evolution. Welcome to The Evolver, where each week I talk with inspiring pioneers of the new consciousness culture. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Acast, or on the podcast app of your choice. Please share this episode with fellow weavers at the Spring Maypole. Leave a rating on iTunes and post about it on social media. Our email address is theevolver at evolver.net for feedback. You can follow us on Instagram at the Evolver Podcast and on Facebook at Evolver Social Movement. Now, let's get started.
0: Welcome to The Evolver,
1: sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen, hosted by Ken Jordan. How does spirit show up in your life? For so many, Source is meant to be experienced within the confines of religion. But the way that religion tends to focus our engagement with the workings of spirit diminishes it, literalizes it, turns the ineffable into something narrow and contained. You pray at a certain time of week. Take part in the appropriate rituals. Eat this wafer, fast on that day, kneel here, bow there. What you don't do is let the rush of spirit express itself through your body. The energy that has its wild origin in Source gets muted. The volume turned down from a roar to a whisper, if it's even noticeable at all. But Source refuses to stay controlled for long. If you repress it in one place, it bursts back through other cracks in the pavement. As Leonard Cohen famously put it, there's a crack in everything that's how the light gets in connection to source can be so profoundly sublime but it can also be unruly challenging disturbing all the frequencies are in play from high to low the move towards light can call forward some of the darkest stuff in your vicinity in our day the church that most of us attend to feel connected to these vibrations is the cathedral of art in art The flow of source can reach us without being conformed into an orthodoxy, to a banal simplification of the multiplicity of existence. Art is messy, and that's why it's so effective. If it's good, art forces crack after crack into the comfortable and contained picture that you view of the world. Great art can make you uncomfortable. Just like a profound spiritual experience, it'll put you in a place of knowing that is beyond words, while leaving you with more questions than answers. My guest today, Darius James, is a wonderfully insightful explorer of this terrain, where art meets spirit at the crossroads where the full range of energies are present. I've been looking forward to this conversation with Darius for a while. We've known each other forever, going back to the 80s downtown New York art and poetry scene where he had a well-deserved reputation as a literary badass. I remember that punk novelist Kathy Acker loved his stuff, and word was that he had been taken under the wing of the legendary dark humorist Michael O'Donoghue, the signal writer of Saturday Night Live during its early glory days. In more recent years, Darius has had his own awakening experience, which we discuss. His insights about the connection between creativity and spirituality are so smart and provocative, they certainly got me thinking. Towards the end of this episode, he treats us to a reading of new writing. So stick around, you won't want to miss it. In 1992, Darius James published his first and only novel, Negrophobia, a caustic, hallucinatory knife blade of a book It was probably about a quarter century ahead of its time it's recently been re-released in a new edition by the new york review of books press and has been getting high profile recognition as a classic of american satire and african-american satire in the book darius weaves in references to voodoo and other earth-based spiritual practices but the real spiritual value of the book is how it acts as a kind of exorcism for the reader Surfacing repressed, racist, consumerist, and materialist attitudes, exposing them under the white heat of an illuminated gaze. It's also laugh out loud funny. That's the power of art, to give form to the way that energy moves through consciousness, through the body, shaping our experience while somehow resisting our ability to reduce it to mundane explanations. That energy, which is our intelligence, is always in motion. The trick is to release yourself into the flow of it without having to understand it. Art can teach you to do that, sometimes just by making you laugh. Everyone seems to be talking about CBD these days, that is, cannabidiol, the non-psychoactive component of cannabis. The buzz is that CBD doesn't make you high, like THC does. But for conditions such as stress and anxiety, health professionals are increasingly recommending it as an alternative to pharmaceuticals, and scientific research is showing that CBD is highly anti-inflammatory, so it can help with pain relief. What does the scientific research say about CBD? Research centers in the United States and elsewhere are studying the effects of CBD on a variety of ailments. Scientists refer to CBD as a promiscuous compound because it offers therapeutic benefits in many different ways, while tapping into how we function physiologically and biologically on a deep level. Extensive preclinical research and some clinical studies have shown that CBD has strong antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, antidepressant, antipsychotic, and neuroprotective qualities. What's the best way to take CBD? CBD CBD-rich cannabis oil products can be taken sublingually, orally, as edibles, lozenges, beverages, tinctures, and gel caps, or applied topically. Concentrated cannabis oil extracts can also be heated and inhaled with a vape pen. Inhalation is good for treating acute symptoms that require immediate attention. The effects can be felt within a minute or two and typically last for a couple of hours. The effects of orally administered CBD-rich cannabis oil can last for four hours or more. But the onset of effects is much slower, like 30 to 90 minutes, than inhalation. Evolver is the proud papa of the Alchemist Kitchen, a botanical dispensary located in the Bowery District of New York, where you can find the finest quality CBD products available without THC. We also make our own premium CBD under the Plant Alchemy label. Our producer Jose's mom uses it for stress, anxiety, and high blood pressure. Our plants are grown in both field and greenhouse environments, cultivated using living soil organic principles, leveraging strictly organic inputs, and in full compliance with the controls defined by the Colorado Department of Agriculture. Our plants are some of the highest CBD cannabis varieties currently known. You can find out more about CBD by visiting the Alchemist Kitchen website at thealchemistskitchen.com. There's an S in there. And searching for CBD. There are articles on the blog, an FAQ, and a selection of vetted products. Or stop by our spot at 21 East 1st Street in Manhattan between Bowery and 2nd Avenue and talk to one of our staff herbalists. At the shop, tell them you listen to the Evolver podcast and receive a 10% discount on any product on the shelves. So I'm holding in my hand The new edition of Negrophobia, an urban parable with an introduction by Amy Abugo-Onguri. And it's beautiful, congratulations. And we're talking about just now the cover, which is a photograph of the original edition of Negrophobia, that cover. It was a cover that got some, you know, people talking. Uh, Yeah,
2: that was, I can't remember her name, but she did rights clearances, copyrights at uh, Carol Publisher, which is the original publisher. Yes, and uh, she was upset by the cover because of its <clears throat> because it featured
1: a light bulb headed Negro, a drawing, uh, st- uh, uh. yeah, a stereotype. Could you describe? What you see when you look at this, like for somebody who hasn't seen the cover. Basically, this woman
2: is frightened of her own shadow. A white woman. Yes. And it's like this cartoonish minstrel figure, you know, with the big lips. It's kind of nice though. The shadow of her legs and then her body just, just takes on the form of this minstrel figure as she's looking over her shoulder. When the New York Times chose to report about the cover, they didn't really talk about Steve Brower's background because clearly he was coming from sort of the graphics of the new left, cartoonist, that sort of thing. So Steve Uh, Brower did the cover. He's the artist. Yes, Steve. He was... um, head of design at carroll publishing at the time did he did you talk to him about the idea
1: for the cover Uh, no
2: he just did the did the cover i liked it personally but you know people were complaining about the image which was which was kind of silly because the book is filled with those kinds of images it seemed like he was channeling the book pretty on target No, it was perfect. The incidentally, the book
1: hangs in the graphic design wing of the Smithsonian. That minstrel image—that's essentially a shadow against the wall behind this, shall we say? You know, you know, white woman in a negligee in high heels. Almost, it's kind of what it looks like. You can see how some folks might find that a rather disturbing well it just
2: was kind of funny but that is a mask that was basically worn by white entertainers (laughs) so who's to say whether or not the the
1: figure is black or white so rather than going back and reprising the same cover again for the new edition um i met this woman named
2: Natasha Xavier, who is one, a uh, photographer in England, Great Britain, who specializes in black metal photography. She does a lot of photographs of black metal bands and musicians. And also she's a transgressive fetish model. You know, she'll, do portraits of herself as a killer nun, for example, or paint herself as a kind of a female John Wayne Gacy in in clown makeup, except she's nude. Whoa, uh, she's yeah, she's pretty hardcore. Friend of yours? Yes, I met her through Gidget King who was one of the founding members of um Marilyn Manson and the spooky kids. He was a heroin addict, unfortunately. And he, you know, he OD'd some years ago. Um and unfortunately, Marilyn Manson booted him from the band just as they were signing their contract with Trent Reznor. Oh my God. Yeah. Not good timing. No, but, and actually he wrote a lot of, uh, their first album. He introduced me to her. We had a lot of uh, in- exchanges over the internet and she sent me this photograph and told me she was taking a bath one morning, reading uh, a galley of my book. Of the new edition. Of the old edition. Oh. Of,
0: yeah,
2: of negrophobia when it came out in galley form. Back you know, in the day. Yeah. And uh, she suddenly stood up, grabbed her camera, and took a picture of herself and sent it to me. It's a woman standing up. Holding a copy of Negrophobia, The Galley, with the original cover with a pair of uh, white gloves on. The photograph is called All Black
1: Cats Look Alike in the Dark. And it's a high contrast black and white photo. Yes. Which makes it, you know, artful. You're seeing, you're seeing the book against somebody's body. Yeah. Pretty powerful, um, so it's almost and because it's the it overexposed it looks like overexposed black and white. Yeah. So it's like a way of um, showing the old cover um, without and referencing it mm-hmm. without necessarily taking the minstrel face and ramming it into somebody's eyeballs. Right. on the bookshelf, very artfully done. Yeah, yeah,
2: I was pleased. They wanted to use a painting by Robert Cole Scott, which actually reminded me of um this sort of like adult gag cartoons from
1: you know, the early sixties. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
2: This I, is, which this, I no. no, I couldn't no.
1: Wouldn't it work. You had this gleeful look on your face when you're talking about some of the craziest shit
2: mm-hmm. that
1: you've touched
2: on. I have had kind of an unusual experience in life, you know, um, certain experiences I had as a child. For example, you know, when I was 8 years old, my parents thought I was going to die as a result of a car accident. When I was 4, I was taken to Europe because they thought I was going to die in 2 years, right? And while in Europe, I met... Bricktop. Sorry, who is Bricktop? She is a performer and club owner. And she was a black expat who went to Europe on the international tour of Shuffling Along, right? Whoa. You know, an all-black production from 20s, 30s, something like that. She along with Josephine Baker. That group of people, my father wanted to see her club. He brought me along. And I remember being introduced to Bricktop, who didn't seem too taken with me, probably because she wasn't used to children. Also, during that same trip, I met Romulus Mussolini. Uh, He, He was the son of Benito. He was a jazz musician. He didn't die that long ago but he was a jazz guitarist i met him at a jazz festival in genoa which your parents took you to Uh, yeah my father was friends with dwike mitchell of the mitchell rough duo you know they were among the first american jazz musicians to visit the soviet union In the 50s, they brought along, actually, the Yale's Boys Choir or something like that with them. Um, I didn't know this until recently. A member of the choir was a man by the name of Phil Proctor.
1: I know that name. Who is Phil Proctor, for those who don't know?
2: Phil Proctor is a member of the original Firesign Theater, who I met a few years back because... Phil is reprising his role as Richard Nixon in a film that I worked on called Sammy Gate. Basically, it's about how Sammy Davis Jr. inadvertently caused Watergate. And actually, Noel is uh, almost finished with uh, post-production, and we should see it in a couple months. Awesome. This is all based on old Firesign Theater. No, he way. was just the actor. Ah okay. no, I wrote,
1: you oh, know, cool. some of
2: the scenes in the movie. We cast Phil Proctor to play Richard Nixon. I wanted to have
1: that because he played he was in the Fireside Theater. <laughs> it's awesome. Now for me with growing up with Firesign Theater was a big deal. Yeah. Those albums in vinyl scratched yes with covers that you know had been used to roll many a joint those were the days your connection to some of this very funny very crazy you know performative art certainly you know Helped to shape you, yeah, I, and you also. Well yeah. if I
2: remember, <laughs> uh, you used to go to Sunday afternoon
1: storytelling sessions as a child at the Electric Circus with Michael O'Donoghue. Of course, I went to one. Yes. I was eight years old. That okay. was a big. That was my. That yeah. was one of my big introductions. You got this incredible kind of burst of creative connection. Um, in, for your that you're generating around yourself and for yourself, doing making this, you know, making art, connecting with folks, and you know, doing all these kind of crazy, cool projects. That was just talking about the,
2: the weird kind of social synchronicities, you know, in my life, like in Berlin, mm-hmm. for example. You know, my, my social circle was rather extreme. I couldn't introduce one end of my social circle to the other because there would be conflict. You know, I had friends who were pretty much committed leftists. I met Ermgart Mueller. Uh, She was the last surviving member of the Red Army Faction or the Bader-Meinhof Gang. Who survived the the massacre at Stahheim, the prison that was built specifically for the Red Army faction uh, near Stuttgart? She wasn't murdered along with the rest of them. However, uh, she you know spent as much time that was illegally permissible by German law in prison you know i think she was like 22 she was out by the time she was in her 50s um i think the maximum is like 25 years or something so how did you connect with her again that was a woman i was involved with at the time who used to tune guitars for a band called the golden zutronin the uh, guy who was a founder of the Golden and a German punk band, his mother was a member of a sister cell of the Red Army Faction, the June 2nd movement. And I was invited to come to Munich and talk about black exploitation films and the Black Panther Party and trying to show some relationship. And she was there in the audience and I was introduced to her. Um, unfortunately, my father came along and he was not paying attention to the fact that, that the people I was going to introduce him to were form, former members of uh, you know guerrilla cells. And and as soon as I offered my hand, he hit on her. <laughs> <laughs> did,
1: did that kind of that kind of yeah, stop that of the conversation? Kind, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow, man. <laughs> okay, so that's one extreme. You want to present two oh, extremes? Oh, and then, yeah, then okay. the okay.
2: other is my neighbor, your neighbor, yeah, in Berlin, yeah, in Berlin, Andy the German. He's the only German. No, 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 no. Andy the German was misidentified as John Doe number three in the Oklahoma City bombings. What? Yes, there, there, there's like this crazy, like white supremacist lawyer, or this lawyer that defends like white supremacists, mm-hmm. and he was circulating the rumor that my neighbor. Who was known as Andy the German? I'm not in the states. Uh, yeah, he was like the mysterious member, you know, with um, McVeigh, all of that, right?
1: So, was he friends with McVeigh? I uh, he
2: knew McVeigh,
1: uh, but basic, he was in that world. He was in that. Yeah, world. He, uh, yeah, he was very much a part of that world, and he became your buddy.
2: Uh yeah. I mean that 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 was the thing because I don't. Automatically dismiss people who might have views that are counter to my own. <laughs> you know, I try and listen to them <laughs> because I learned that, well, I mean, one of the first points of revolutionary conduct, you know, in the Black Panther Party was know your enemy. And how do you know your enemy? The best way to learn your enemy is to listen to them. Yeah, go out for a beer. Yes. And uh-huh. we did that frequently. Um, as you were his it, black friend, more or less, yeah. Okay, because uh, he Andy would like go off sometime, you know, talking about blacks and Jews, and I would have to tell him to shut up,
1: and he would. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's an interesting time we, that we're in right now, historically, yeah. where certain people have. Tremendous difficulty listening to expressions of feelings that they find offensive. Right. That's not your problem. I
2: uh, there are things that, that that occasionally get to me, but it 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 depends on how it's said or how it's presented. Because I mean, there's. For example, if someone is expressing something they genuinely feel, I can handle that, right? But if they're deliberately trying to get my goat, that tends
1: to annoy me. So if it feels personal, if it feels like it's coming after you in a way that's pointed and you know meant to trigger, as opposed to an expression of a kind of ignorance,
2: yeah, as uh, something like that.
1: Yeah, I think. Well, I'm wondering, like, how you did. De- well, I'll tell you. I don't get offended easily, mm-hmm. right? And in fact, I tend to appreciate the 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 wide range of perspectives that exist on this planet, and recognize that when you get past the surface stuff, there's a lot more in common than we have not in common. Right. And then, in fact, that commonality is really weird and bizarre and often goes unacknowledged, but it's vibed. Yeah. And that's how people really come together and connect with each other or participate in community or participate in whatever it is that we we do with each other. And that we're all in some kind of process of motion from one place to another in our own development of whoever the hell we are. And to lock somebody in to little a box based on, you know, a... Uh, professed belief is I think not helpful. No. Right? And in fact, you know, staying in a place where you're open as a person, comfortable with ambiguity, comfortable with things sort of shifting all the time, as long as you're able to hold your own alignment to what you know is important. Right. And frankly, you know, stay open hearted, stay really you know, connected to the to the yeah. energies that are really in motion, that are really happening. Um, the surface stuff becomes a lot less interesting to me in that sense of like, oh, somebody just, you know, mouthing off about whatever. I don't necessarily connect a uh, surface behavior, right, with something that I feel I need to react to in the way that it seems like a lot of people now do.
2: Yeah.
1: <clears throat> How do you handle that?
2: You would, You talked about surface behavior, surface realities. One of the things I've learned from my meditation practice is that most identities or what we call identities are masks that can be easily shed. Uh, that those masks, those social masks, those cultural masks, those racial masks are like predetermined and actually don't have as much to do with spirit as one might think. If I listen to another person's point of view from a position of spirit, I can see beyond their mask, see beyond their behavior. Unfortunately, that is not an approach to other people we're conditioned to take. We don't have a keen sense of what spirit is and how to live in spirit, how to enjoy the spirit of others. Um, I hope that. Makes some kind of
1: sense. Oh, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. How do you connect to your understanding of how of what spirit is? What that draws you into that connection? The spirit is
2: a relatively new phenomenon in my life. I was introduced to meditation in two thousand four. It was a result of my experience with meditation that I realized I had a soul. Prior to that, it was this rather abstract idea I took for granted, but through the experience of uh, seated meditation I became aware of multiple selves while sitting and counting breath paying attention to the inner reality behind the black curtain you know of closed eyelids or or um slitted eyelids in Zen, like Zen Meditate, the Zen approach, that world became rather rich for me. For example, the experience I had that made me a believer. I had made a promise to someone that I would meditate for at least 30 days you know for a half hour who'd you promise that to this was a uh, to Zena Shrek she um introduced me to meditation Zena is the uh, undaughter of Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan she got you to meditate uh yeah I <laughs> I I met them in Berlin they live in Berlin. Nicholas showed up at the bookstore that I spent a lot of time at and introduced himself to me. For a time, we got to be friends. And they exposed me to their own point of view, their experiences in life. And actually, what they showed me was that they were people of
1: a spiritual discipline, had you any connection at all to the viscerally to the idea of a spiritual discipline for yourself at that no. point? You no. were essentially an artist in a secular world who drank a lot. Who drank a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it was just not this the it, and, it, and, it, and and you know like because we've known each other a long time. Yeah, the old Lower East Side, New York art yeah. downtown art scene in which. We cohabitated. Yes, was not a spiritual place by and large. Though there were certain folks in the Buddhist realm, right? You know, sort of. But uh, if you were not like sitting regularly with the Naropa folks, yeah, basically the spiritual thing just did not. Carry no, I did of It didn't.
2: It it didn't make any sense. I mean, I you know I didn't have real context for. It. I was reading Ishmael Reed, and he talked about. V- uh, voodoo, hoodoo, that sort of thing. Um, I developed an interest in that, but, a re- well, actually, it's a little more involved, my experience with the witch community on Lurie's side. You know, Ninth Street, Enchantments, the Minoan, the so-called Minoan crew. Um, what was it about that stuff that drew you in? I was hired as a researcher by Michael O'Donoghue, who, Michael O'Donoghue. Was, who was working on a screenplay with Nelson Lyons and Jerry um, Southern. It was the sequel to Easy Rider, and the, uh, it was called Biker Heaven. Basically, Jack Nicholson was supposed to play God, and he comes back to Earth, and he resurrects like... The two protagonists from *Easy Rider* back to life, and he presents them with uh, with the Gadsden flag. He, you know, to restore America back to its former glory and all that nonsense. And the United States itself has been reduced to a group of biker gangs, and one of the gangs is uh, a group of lesbian witches. and
1: I had to f- research for Michael because Michael himself didn't really know that much about lesbian witches right. So I said, go out and get some notes. Yes, give me something to work from. Yes. Um, and <laughs> so quickly and Michael O'Donohue in 30 seconds or less, Mm-hmm. Was
2: uh, Michael O'Donoghue was Mr. Mike from Saturday Night Live he was, um, you know, an important writer for the National Lampoon. He began at the Evergreen Review with the Adventures of Phoebe Zeitgeist, who
1: was edited, I believe, by your father. Um yeah. my dad actually got Michael's manuscript out of a slush pile hmm. back in the day. Really? Yeah and they uh decided to uh get him to do this comic strip and that led to one thing after another eventually michael was a key guy at national lampoon sort of creating the space for a whole different kind of black humor mm-hmm. which yeah. became the you know the popular humor of our day yeah. you know every one of these kind of you know gonzoe like You know, drunken National Lampoon influenced, you know, pop films. You mean like Animal House? Animal House, Caddyshack. Yeah. You know, Ghostbusters. All of that. Yeah. Came out of, frankly, a lot of it came out of the work that Michael did. And eventually he became the central writer for Saturday Night Live when it launched. Yes. He was the reason that John Bellucci joined the show. It was like 83, 84, that Mm -hmm. period.
2: And, um, I started hanging out at this this occult shop that was filled with these lesbian witches. And I was taking notes, and I would pass them on to Michael. But at the same time, I, you know, got interested and started experimenting with uh, various spells and things like that. Did it work for you? Uh, yeah, they did. You know, but I learned that there are consequence, <laughs> consequences. Consequences you know yeah. that i hadn't considered when doing the spell so if i do them now i have to take the consequences into account when um building my magic however i'm at the point where i believe magic is a byproduct of one's spiritual development that's what, is, what Hindus call sadis, gifts, gracious. Um, I think this period I'm living in right now is a, a period of, of, of grace. Um, I'm receiving gifts. I mean, and not only is has my book um been returned to print but i'm being offered other opportunities um my relationship with people have gotten better um my my psychic health is improving <laughs> hold
0: up
2: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: So you were doing this research, dabbling a bit in the kind of witchy thing, yeah. doing some spells, trying that out, getting in the magic a little bit, but still not connecting to a deeper spiritual no. current. No, it was actually
2: that was the surprising thing because I, I mean, my thing since high school when I decided to become a writer that I had recognized that there was this relationship between the magical and the creative, and I wanted to find out what that was. For years, I, I, I pursued that. In terms of my own personal research, you know, I had lots of blocks because what I was doing frightened a lot of people. Um, In Berlin, when I met the Shreks, what they were teaching answered a lot of my questions. Uh, The book, which I would recommend, although it's costs like some god-awful amount of money is uh, Demons of the Flesh, A Guide to Left-Hand Path Sex Magic, which I found to be one of the clearest explanations of magic I've ever read. And I think it's a good introduction. You'd have to, you know, read other things in terms of kundalini and Buddhism and all of
1: that. To develop the idea but it's it's a good introduction you know so um, what led to you being challenged to meditate for 30 days
2: uh, I, was, I would meet with them you know like once a week and we'd have tea and coffee and whatever and talk and uh, Zena said to me one day there's something I'd like to show you I said okay but once I show you this, you have to promise you'll to do this every day for at least a month. And I said okay. So they, so I met the next time I met them. We met at Zoo Garden in Berlin by a tree, which was near a lake, and she showed me how to meditate. So, how did she,
1: what was the technique she showed you?
2: Basically, it was counting
1: to 60 and then, you know,
2: continue. But back
1: to one. Yeah. So, count your breaths. Mm-hmm. If you have any thoughts, mm-hmm. Trying. try and try, get yeah. rid of them. If you lose count, go back to one. Mm-hmm. Keep your back straight. Yes. Check your posture. Mm hmm. That's the same technique that Allen Ginsberg taught me. Really? That's how I learned how to meditate, huh. except he went to 10. Even mm. then, and when he, when he did that with me, I couldn't get to 10. But if, yeah. if I was counting my breath and I'd have a thought, I'd get lost by seven, I didn't know where I was. I'd have to go back to one mm-hmm. and I'd start again. Huh, that's interesting. And so, yeah, that's. huh. huh. What? So you were, doing, you were doing this technique. Yeah. And how long did it take you to get to 60? Maybe two, three minutes. No, I'm saying. Oh, so you were able to do it right away? Yeah. Oh, you got a lot better starting point than I did. Yeah, I went. You know, and I, you know, I would.
2: <sighs> I got to the point where I didn't have to count anymore. I just focus on my breath, on um, the light behind my eyes, and before the month was out, I, you know, I was at the point where, I mean, I enjoyed it. Okay, I didn't see anything especially remarkable in it. When I first began, one night, it was about 3 o'clock in the morning, I woke up and I started meditating. I'm sitting, breathing, counting, and all of a sudden my head lights up a light bulb. It just explodes with light. And I was like, damn,
1: <laughs>
2: what is that? And that's why I've continued the practice. That was one experience. I've had others- Did you get back to that light moment again in your practice? Um. Sometimes I get to it. Sometimes other things happen. I feel- kundalini disturbances an energetic kind of shot up the spine you feeling it coming up you feel it coming up from below and going up yeah but it doesn't go very far up It's, it's it's like there um i had another experience where i felt like i was levitating probably the weirdest experience i had it was just a combination of the circumstances and where my you know in where my head was at after meditating. One afternoon I like meditated, left my apartment and and after I finished meditating, I had to meet a friend of mine at a cafe in Berlin. I walked to the cafe and I couldn't find it. It appeared that I had walked back in time. The cafe had like all these uh, sandbags, a a machine gun tower, It was like Noel's Checkpoint Charlie point. Whoa. It took me like two or three minutes to figure out it was a movie set. They had turned the cafe. (laughs) But it was like, I was like, whoa. It it felt like I had just like walked back in time. you And I was frequently having experiences like that.
1: Because the, let me just guess. Because the meditation practice gave you a toolkit to navigate your way to that porous place in your consciousness, Mm -hmm. where you're tapping into these other levels of awareness, which I would say as a particularly tuned in writer and artist as you are, that's been part of something that you've been cultivating in all kinds of different ways already in your life. I mean, that's where negrophobia comes from. These are visions, wild visions, very funny in your face, Challenging visions, but you know, one of the reasons that the book is so powerful, but also for some people so highly charged, is because they're the kinds of dreams that you know some people have a lot you know have difficulty reconciling themselves to, right? Because they're really challenging a lot of assumptions about what the society is and how we should all be. You know, how do we really live together? What's really going on on the surface and under the surface? So you're tapping into all kinds of things. You have this talent meditation gives you a toolkit to to essentially write a map into that territory and start to go into it with more deliberation or more control or more it i think you know the the deliberation control just
2: is is a result of the writing you know the the practice of writing the craft of writing the visions the the that state is facilitated through uh meditation as one practice sufism offers a set of practices spiritual practices dancing singing for for altering consciousness zen buddhism offers meditation as a way of altering consciousness in the last seven years the Vudan universe is beginning to open up to me that offers a set of practices a set of visions that I can tap into it's a reality that I believe offers something that can save and heal people you know um, it's
1: not easy entering into that reality. I mean, this is the challenge that so many people who start to get a sense of that, that reality is really there. Yeah. Going down that road puts a lot of stuff in your face that you got to deal with, you got to work through in order to maintain your connection to that reality. Yes. The first thing that starts to happen when you go down these roads is that you're, the stuff that you don't want to look at That maybe the more difficult aspect of who you are and what, you know, and and, and the wounds that have shaped your life get thrown in your face.
2: Yeah, but that's the initiatory experience because the initiatory experience is the death and rebirth cycle. You know, you confront a form of death or the dissolution of the so-called selves, you know, and to be reborn anew. I don't know a lot about. The, I don't know anything about Tibetan Book of the Dead, but you. One of the things you know after you die is that you encounter all these different monsters. These, you know, and your your ability to see past the illusion of these monsters will s- supposedly ensure that you can escape the karm the karmic wheel, right. You don't have to live this existence once again. I think, again, that's like the the, uh, the initiatory experience. Like, can you uh, work through those fears? Um, And that's actually a real thing in my life right now. You know, I've suffered for years with this kind of incessant anxiety. And it's just now becoming clear to me where that comes from. um I meant earlier I mentioned that I was hit by a car when I was a child. Um, my body is always braced. I don't relax, you see, and I'm always ready for like this this impact when I was hit by a car. I was knocked like 40 feet. You were Threw, through the air. 4 years of, old? Yeah. F- through the air out of my sneakers and I landed on my head so like I've got like I'm brain damaged on you know the the left side of my brain. Um the doctors didn't expect me to live past the age of 10. They couldn't do anything when I showed up in the emergency room. They they, they just told my parents I was going to die. But I was in a coma for like four days, and I revived. Now, while in this coma, I had this experience, you know, like the, the death thing, I... Imagine myself rising up through the heavens. Once I was in heaven, four-year-old mine now, okay? I was greeted by a group of angels. And one of the angels told me that it was not my time to die and that they were going to send me back. But I had to promise to do something. And I've been trying to figure out what that was for for, for, for for like the last like fifteen years when I realized, when I remembered all of this, through my initial encounter with Val Gente, who is a Haitian electronic voodoo drummer, I learned for certain that I was a member of a family of Lois That that and aloa is of uh, the 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 a spirit, the an ancestral spirit. That they have names. Um, my my particular family is called Gede. They have dominion over death, and they are called upon when children are sick. That they have, um, you know, like. When medicine and all that other stuff, everything else doesn't work. You call get you know, like I was hit by a car, right? Um, and then it's kind of suddenly everything started to make sense. You know that I had those people that I encountered while in a coma wasn't necessarily angels, but rather just my family. You know, as that had had come. I mean. People I had never seen, never met, they had just come there and they sent me back. And I was trying to figure out what that is, um, what it was that I was supposed to do. <sighs> okay. I met this woman over the internet. Her name is Nendandi. She is a child of Kali, the Kali She is also a psychic reader. She's very good. And I wanted to test her out to see how good she was. You know, so we exchanged readings. I do cards. What kind of cards? Tarot cards. You know, just simple tarot cards. What deck do you use? I, you know, I use the weight deck. You know, the Pamela Cole. What's her last name? I forget. Anyway, um... So, we were exchanging readings. And actually, without my telling her anything, she began to talk about my ancestors, that whatever it was that I was supposed to do, I've already done, that I was supposed to say something, speak for them. And apparently, according to her reading, I've already done that, given... The work that I'm doing now in terms of, um, you know, spirituality and creativity, I want to deepen that work, you know, with the kind of writing I'm doing now. And what is that writing? Well, it's in two phases. There's a kind of writing I'm trying to develop, a kind of spirit writing. I've been writing these pieces for, like, the last, like, four years that I hope to do with Val. Recorded. They're just spoken word pieces, okay? From what I learned about speaking in the voices of spirits in this language, and, you know, I want to write a novel. You know, basically about my experience with this group of uh, women that, that I hang out with in Brooklyn.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> that you're hanging out with today? Yes. Are these folks who you met through the making of the film? Yes. The film is called? The United States of Hooter." It's a wonderful film. Thank you. And I'm not sure how people can see it today. I had to get a special link. I went to check for it on Netflix. I didn't see it was there at the moment. Um, I'm a little annoyed with the production
2: company, so I don't really talk to them. Um, There's... I heard that you can watch it on YouTube. It may have been taken down. I don't know, but also on Vimeo.
1: Okay. There's got to be a way for people to find it and
2: see it. Go to the website. It'll tell you
1: where you can purchase it. For, you know, a nominal fee. Yeah, well, being able to purchase means it's available. So that's the positive thing. Yeah. You mentioned you were drawn into an engagement with Voudon. That goes back to
2: my research days with Michael O'Donoghue. Because um, at the time, I was rooming with someone who was a member of this Minoan cult. And... They um left the cult, and when they left the cult they they gifted me uh, a teeny tiny atami, a knife, a ritual knife, and some other nonsense right the atami I gave to a then girlfriend who welded the atami into this metal rocking chair, and she set the rocking chair in the middle of this dirt field near Yale where she was going to show it to the rest of her class. The day of um you know the unveiling, she shows up at the field and the rocking chair has been run over by a bulldozer. It's been flattened.
1: You that know? knife was not meant to be used on that rocking chair in right. that way. Right. Yes.
2: And I taking um a train to New York, and I happen to run into somebody from New Haven's uh, occult community who gives me this warning that they didn't like the fact that I was interested in their, their tradition, you know, and that I should uh, join voodoo cult because I was black and all of that, right? And I said, Jesus Christ.
1: As so, it happened- This is a white guy saying you're in the yes, wrong tradition. Yes. Because your skin color does not yeah, match yeah, up yeah, with exactly. my understanding of what you should be doing. Exactly. Oh, jeez!
2: It just happened that my best friend from high school, who is also a member of uh, Crowley's fraternal
1: order. I mean, you were like surrounded by this stuff much more than I ever really understood. Oh, that's fascinating. Well yeah, I mean that OTO. He was in the OTO? Yeah.
2: Yeah, she was Sally Glassman. Um she was in the OTO. Mm -hmm. Um she actually rose through the ranks of the OTO rather quickly. At one point she was second in command of the order. If the caliph was out of the country for more than twenty-eight hours, as she 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 was at, she was like the caliph, right? She got disgusted with the order and through some contacts of Maya Darren. She's long dead, but you know there are people that were still within Maya Darren's Uh, tradition.
1: Working with Voudin. Yes. Maya Deren was- One of the handful of great American poetic filmmakers- Exactly. Who became deeply involved with Voudon, did beautiful films- Yeah. and Involving Voudon practices in various ways, incorporating aspects of them into the art that she made.
2: Yeah. And her book on uh, Voudin- Divine Horseman. The Divine Horseman. Is is t- t- a great poetic work. You know, it it. Reading the book, you get a sense of the the divine. Sally is a linear descendant. You know, in in terms of tradition of Maya Darin. Uh she left the OTO, and went to Haiti, initiated in Haiti found a Papalau Edgar who brought her into the tradition. People who really understand, you know, the tradition. I don't want to get say too much about it, but, you know, there are a lot of people who who believe that she's appropriating, which is not true, that, that this cultural appropriation.
1: No, it's not true.
2: But anyway.
1: So you were getting yeah. called into the Voudon thing. Well so there was something that was going on back then. Yeah. Where it was kind of dingling in the background somehow. Yeah. And but you didn't really grab it at that point.
2: No. Basically
1: I was in Berlin and I was broke.
2: And I was thinking, well, what could I write about? I know a lot about um the so called occult underground in the US. Mm-hmm. You know, why don't I talk about my experiences? And why don't I try and write a book about my experiences in Voodoo? And that led me into like a number of areas. I wrote this proposal, I gave it to an agent, it was sent around. Everyone came back, claimed they didn't understand what it was that I wanted to do, and they didn't trust me to write this. Um I Gave. I sent a proposal to a friend of mine who was a filmmaker. I sent it to him specifically because English was clearly his second language. And I asked him to read it and to see if he understood it. And I thought to myself, if he could have understood this, there was something wrong with those people in the publishing houses who said they didn't understand what I wanted to do. Um, he came back and said, not only do I understand that, I want to make a
1: film based on this. Uh-huh. And that's how the project was launched. And that then became for you the avenue into Voudon? Yeah. You met a bunch of people in Brooklyn. Brooklyn, uh, New Orleans, um, in Mississippi, Seattle. And did you find yourself being drawn into practices?
2: Um, Not while I was doing the documentary. I mean, I stuck with, you know, my meditation practice and, you know, intuited situations from that. But it was once the film was done and I started spending more time with Val and her friends that I really began there that I began to be
1: drawn into that, that spiritual reality. And so the aspect of that spiritual reality that I am fairly familiar with yeah has to do with mediumship and the way that in certain ceremonies people can be mounted yeah where the energetic presence of a disembodied being can be held in a body yeah is that Part of what kind of drew you into when you started to see this stuff happen or did you did you have engagements with that? Have you seen I that? I've seen that happen,
2: um, which was interesting to me because, you know, in terms of the books, academically, they talk about various mo- ceremonies. You're supposed to call this person, this loa and that loa and bring out these flags and drink this and pour that on the floor. Um, I've seen it happen spontaneously yeah you know it you know i which is making me question the role of tradition in terms of making that you know to bring
1: forth that kind of reality that is exactly where I feel that the culture is now moving, the spiritual culture is now moving mm-hmm. in the sense that there are all these lineages that within essentially monocultures, have shaped very specific kinds of practices in order to create a group effect that say, calls in a spirit, or enables a certain kind of transmission to happen, or enables a certain kind of light to become present. There's all these different ways that spiritual energy emanates in a practice. But the unique thing about the moment we're in is that you've got a lot of people who become very sensitive to this kind of spiritual reality, are feeling it in their bodies, are noticing it in their visions, are experiencing it in all kinds of different ways and feeling it empirically, they're having it validated. And then they're able to kind of go from tradition to tradition almost and kind of see, well, whoa, beneath all of the hoo-ha, there's a substrate of common energetic experience. And that Essentially, you don't necessarily need to follow the dotted line of a particular lineage. If you have developed the sensitivity in a certain way, you can find other ways to arrive in the same place because yes. there's a it, there's the the cultural um, what's the word I'm looking for? There's the cultural artifacts mm-hmm. and then there's the place. Psychically, that you arrive at when you work with those cultural artifacts that you can learn to get to without the artifacts. Right. You maybe need that stuff to figure out. It's almost like you're being shown a path to a door that's like, you know, in a building that's not marked. So you got to figure out like how to get to that door. Once you've gotten to that door and you know where it is. You can find it blindfolded sometimes, right? Yeah. In theory. I mean, that's kind of what I'm... Well, at. basically, it's... Well, I mean... I mean, this is going to sound silly, but it's like
2: I, when I first started, you know, when I was experimenting with various spells and things. When I was experimenting with various spells I like, get the candles and the incense and the bells and this and that, right? But after a certain point, um, I realized that wasn't necessary. That it was just they were focusing tools for the mind, you know, and that you could do this psychically, mentally, you know, if you, again, if you tapped into the right energies, you know, because basically is the energies in those in those tools
1: were, were, were triggered, were, were those psychic triggers. So you want to talk about this in your novel? Um, yeah. There's been a gap since your last novel. Well, yeah, that's given
2: myself a bunch of excuses as to why. The one I'm going with right now is I hadn't really found the story that, like, would hold me to sustain me through the long process of writing a novel. And given the fact that I'm entering... The twilight years of my life.
1: Oh, you got, you got
2: a little ways to go still. <laughs> um, I've got to make this work. It has to be worthwhile. And I think the stuff that I want to talk about is the kind of thing that that's needed. A lot of my time has just been doing a lot of projects to pay the rent, you know, which interferes with, like, creative stuff because every time i i would start something that i believed in then i got yanked away by you know you've got this bill that bill and whatever
1: right that's real does writing feel to you like an incantation yeah totally totally
2: you know when i read i definitely feel that when i read my work the new spoken word stuff that I was referring to before is very incantory.
1: Is there a way when you're doing it, you know that you're nailing it because of how it feels as an incontory yes, exactly. kind of experience? Yeah, exactly. The same thing with writing. I'll spend like writing
2: eight hours a day, right? At a certain point, say like two in the morning, my brain will just like switch over and it just becomes like this, this this other world that I'm writing from, that I'm drawing on, you know, which is what led me to the idea that magic and the creative basically shared the same ovum. I like to read. I find, you know, read my work publicly. That's, that's I evoke. Um, my words take on a substance, a reality that that seems to have an effect on my environment. I consider that magical. Um,
1: that's very much an incantation. Have you always been doing public readings of negrophobia over the years? Yeah. So you've yeah. always you st- kept book, the connection to it.
2: Yeah, I'm the book grew up in public. You know, it's like I would write some and then I would read some and test it. You know in front of audiences i remember the first time i read the disney speech Uh, i was shut down this was at um was that abc noria was like a
1: sunday afternoon on the Lower East Side, yes, which it was, is shut down at the ABC No Rio because that was meant to be a pretty permissive, supportive space. For- yeah,
2: no, I she, I forget the name of the woman who was leading the the reading thing, but it was like, shut up, you know, yeah, yeah, don't read. I've had, you know, I've had that experience, you know, I had that experience a lot actually, in you know my earlier days. Just kind of shocked. You know, I you know I didn't believe that people would actually close down, you know, um my creative efforts, but they did. But there were other places that didn't, so you know, it just depended on the spot. Could you read a little bit now? This is from the spoken word stuff that I've been referring to backlit by a shell of chromatic radiance displayed pinpoints of light clusters of stars asteroids comets my skulls inner chamber royals with smoldering embers of mugwort frankincense and myrrh the pungent fingers of ghosts elongated swerve swerves tar brushed black and incandescent vertebrae undulating black nipples nakedness with copper locks writhing in serpentine flames, crackles of splintered lights glimmered on cushioned lips, eyes refracted, prisons bubbly reds, sparkling greens, fizzy yellows. I am an alien alphabet foaming in effervescent swirling in a vortex of carbonated colors. I am an obscure tongue of the star system Sirius speaking in the astro pictographs of the dog-headed Dogon. I am a syncopated melody carved on the ancient walls of Temple Anubis. I am Vivified breath, exhaling, variegated light. I am a penal eye revolving in the bush of ghosts. Darius. Yes. Thank you. Thank you.
1: I want to thank Darius James for being a guest on the show. And thank you, too, for joining us. You can follow Darius on Facebook. His page is Dr. Snakeskin, Dr. Snakeskin. Though it's not the most active page, there are some announcements there, and you can kind of follow some of the stuff he's up to. You can also get the new edition of Negrophobia at the bookstore of your choice. Darius is doing some readings to support the book release, including at the legendary City Lights in San Francisco on Sunday, April 21st. And I found his movie, the United States of Hoodoo is available for streaming on Amazon. You should definitely check it out. I want to thank our producer, Jose Alfaro, and the entire a team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album The Secret Song. And our interstitial music are tracks by The Human Experience, Sunu, from the album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia, and here for a moment on the album Gone Gone Beyond. Please check them out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week.
0: Find the others.